Jamie, and good morning, everyone. I've been asked to make a special announcement uh, just before I begin. Edgar Allan Poe is from Baltimore, Maryland, <laughs> home of the Baltimore Ravens. And Randy's feeling pretty good today and just wanted us to all share in his joy. Well, uh, thank you uh, again, Jamie, and, and I, I'm, I'm struggling because, you know, I got the Viking, and then how does Obi-Wan? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I just, so I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with what I've got, and, and, and you know, may, may the force be with us all. <laughs> I wanted to uh, also thank uh, Dennis and the folks here for, for hosting us. There's just a ton of work that always goes into this. And uh, also for Andrew Rarig. Am I holding the mic close enough? It sounds loud to me, but it's okay for you. Okay, so great. And uh, feel free to signal me if I'm um, getting too much reverb. But uh, thanks to Andrew Rarig for pulling so many of the details together. Um, I recently came across a line uh, from Mother Teresa that said that God doesn't call all of us to do great things. He calls some of us, many of us, to do small things with great love. And um, name tags are small things, and you know, just all the details are small things, but uh, Andrew is one who sees to those kinds of details with great love, and uh, we're grateful for that. Thank you, Andrew. Please uh, wear your name tags because I'm getting tired of smiling at you and not being able to call your name because I don't remember it. Uh, and I apologize to all of you that I've greeted. You've greeted me my name. I've smiled back and said, good morning, hi, how are you? And now I get to say your name, so that'll, that'll be great. Um, these are, these gatherings, uh, particularly when we're gathering around some anniversaries, whether it's your birthday or Kevin and Dudley's wedding anniversary or ACM's 25th anniversary or IOM's 30th anniversary. These are kind of Moab moments, Moab moments. Moab takes us back to Deuteronomy, which occurs on the plains of Moab as Israel is getting ready after 40 years of wilderness processing, it's now time for them to step in to the next phase, the next dimensions of God's will and purpose for their lives. Moses does something interesting, which is he rehearses their history for them. One of the Hebrew words that our uh, English Bibles translate uh, as, as future is aharit, and it carries the funny sense of, of backwards. And the idea, maybe one way to picture it, is for the Hebrew mind, you row into the future. Think about rowing a boat for a moment. You're facing the past, aren't you? Sure, occasionally you'll look over your shoulder to where you're going, but actually the way to row 
your boat, whether it's your personal boat or whatever boat God's entrusted you to row in, what you do is you say to yourself, well, if I keep that pine tree and the flag on that dock lined up with me, I'll get where I'm going. So in the Hebrew mindset, unlike our modern American mindset where I'm standing in the prow of the boat, you know, and I am commanding and we're going to go this way and I know exactly where I'm going, how I'm going to get there and right on schedule, biblical mindset is a little more humbling, if you will. I kind of back into the future and the way to get there is to have some fixed points in the past. And that's what Moses does for Israel on the plains of Moab. He rehearses their history. He takes them through it. Not that they would be trapped in the past, but that they would be prepared for the future. Oftentimes, God sows the seeds of the future in what we think of as the past. And it's an interesting idea. And so think about these Moab moments. There are opportunities, even if it's your birthday or wedding anniversary, to check some of those fixed points in your past and make sure that you're still aligned with all that God has already done in you. Well, rooted, reaching, risking, if we conducted a brief uh, unscientific poll and I asked how many of you kind of tend to vibrate on the rooted frequency, sort of those deep bass, you know, low energy, high frequency uh, frequencies as opposed to reaching and risking folks, which I think are a little more, you know, high, high energy, they're a little humming up here. And we'd probably have some kind of of, you know, general dispersal of, you know, if I said, how many rooteds are there? You know, some of us raise our hand, reaching, risking. And um, you're right, I didn't give you a, a clear definition so that you could pick one as opposed to the other. And of course, we don't have to pick one over against the other. We need to be rooted in order to reach. We can't really be properly rooted, and unless we're risking, I appreciate uh, what, what Matt uh, shared last night about sometimes um, the, the tree needs some, some stress, if you will, some risk, embracing risk in some way, in order to get the roots to a deeper place, in order that the branches can get more widely spread. So. The word rooted obviously comes out of the world of agriculture and botany and growing things. Rooted's an agricultural term, not a machine term, and not a tech term. I wonder if there's something in God's sovereignty, and I should say, there is something in God's sovereignty that our scriptures were given to us in an agricultural world as opposed to a machine world, as opposed to a high-tech world. And I think one of the reasons is that agriculture is alive in ways that machines are not. 
God is the living God. He is the God of all who lives. And Scripture keeps us rooted, as John and Kevin and Matt have been reminding us, in this living God. It keeps us grounded in creation, a creation that bears the living imprints of our living God. Creation doesn't equal God. It doesn't contain God. But all creation participates in God's life. We catch glimpses of this in the scripture when we're told that trees clap their hands, stones will shout, all creation groans in eager anticipation of the revelation of the children of God, stars sing. Scripture will use architectural metaphors on occasion, especially when talking about the people of God, but it always does so with an interesting twist. When Peter talks about the temple of God that is the people of Christ, they're living stones in a living temple. The righteous are like trees planted by water. Israel is likened to a vine. Jesus is the true vine and we are the branches. Fruitfulness is used throughout scripture. Productivity, efficiency, and effectiveness are not, neither is success. But fruitfulness features frequently in scripture. We're to be rooted and grounded in love. Jesus is the root of David. Scripture exhorts us to beware lest any root of bitterness grow up among us and so defile many. And also reminds us that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So just a few thoughts, if I may, about us rooted, resonating folks, those of us who kind of tend to vibrate on that rooted frequency as opposed to the reaching and risking frequencies. And yes, it's all of it all the time. It's not picking one is better than the other. Rooteds don't always move with great agility or alacrity. But give them some time, sometimes lots and lots of time, and roots can travel a good distance from where they started. Keep in mind that roots are plowing against the soil. They're working down there in the dirt, not just spreading out against the unresisting air. Roots don't look like much. You've never looked at a tree and said, nice root ball. Roots generally don't look like much, but they're really good at finding all those needed nutrients buried down deep in the earth. When all hell is breaking loose up top, it's really good to have a really good set of roots. And if the roots get diseased, it doesn't really matter what's going on up top. As John the Baptist told us, when the axe of God's judgment is brought to bear on the unfruitful tree, the axe is laid to the roots because that's where the tree's problem is. 
The source of visible unfruitfulness is subterranean. Now, I think when we talk about rootedness a little bit, one of, and I'm going to, uh, you now need to hold on to your necks because we're going to have a little bit of whiplash. We're going to move from botany to physics. Okay, so we've been talking about rooted and some trees and botany stuff. Now we're going to talk, talk, a li- talk, a little, talk a little bit because one of the concerns about rootedness is the problem of getting stuck. And, and we're going to call upon Sir Isaac Newton to help us out here. And first, Newton's first law was about what? This is my little nerd trap, right? <laughs> Somebody's going to be back there and they're going to, like Randy Reinhardt is going to say, Newton's first law reminds us that or states that. So uh, to summarize what Randy so correctly said, uh, Newton's first law is not equal and opposite reactions. It's that objects at rest tend to remain at rest. Objects in motion tend to remain in motion in a straight line unless acted upon by an outside unbalanced force. This is law known as the law of inertia. And thank you, Kevin, for that amen. We tend to hear the word inertia as a negative. It certainly is. The couch potato remains at rest. And that oftentimes, regardless of the outside forces that might be acting upon said potato. And that creates all kinds of bad outcomes for couch potato and the people who love him or her. Some of us, on the other hand, were or perhaps have teenagers who are in all kinds of motion, some of which is carrying them straight towards walls of brick. (laughs) It has also been noted that the seven last words of a church are, but we've always done it this way. These would all be examples of a kind of inertia that's, that's negative. But think for a moment about the saints who hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a kind of inertia at work as well, isn't it? You might think of the phrase, and Kevin already referred to this, a long obedience in the same direction. What's the spiritual inertia that keeps us moving in that long obedience in the same direction? You might think about the connections between the word inertia and integrity. A man or woman of integrity remains unmoved by all those forces seeking to undermine that integrity. A man or woman of integrity remains steadily moving in the way of faith and hope and love. That's inertia too. So I think what I, the picture I want to play with a little bit here is uh, a space probe. So from trees to space probes. So when we launch a space probe towards Mars or Pluto or wherever, give it a tremendous blast off boost and then it proceeds by inertia moving in a straight line towards wherever. And 
This is clearly an inadequate description of your life in Christ. You are not a chunk of metal and electronics hurtling through the empty infinitudes of space. You are a beloved son or daughter of God, but we're just using it as a picture for a moment. Let me play the metaphor out a bit. As the satellite continues its journey, the scientists keep checking its progress and realize that here and there, now and again, it gets off course by a little bit, that its inertia has been deflected by the action of some outside force. And when that happens, and it always does, they can fire some thrusters and do some course corrections to keep the satellite on course. And as you know, a tiny course correction now can make the difference between arriving at your intended destination of Mars or paying an unexpected, unexplained visit to Uranus or Neptune or the Oort Belt or some other place you didn't want to go. Rootedness is important, but inertia, the wrong kind, can be a problem. If your inertia is carrying you to an unpleasant meeting with an asteroid, a course correction now is a wonderful gift. So I want to talk about some of those thrusters, if you will, that God uses to keep us on course. And I want to start by talking about Scripture, God's authoritative, active, living word. And I want you to picture yourself reading the Bible. And I want you to think about the fact that as you're reading your Bible, you think you're reading it. But actually, it's reading you. I want you to imagine that as you have the scriptures open before you, that our one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is looking through that scripture, reading you as you are reading it. It changes how we approach scripture. We're not so much mining it to get advice, tips, commands, promises. Certainly the scriptures are full of the promises of God. But it's actually calling us to be fresh, freshly encountered by the Jesus that every word in scripture points to. As Proverbs says, to all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Every word in scripture is boundless. There's, there's a depth to it that as you read it and it's reading you, it's pulling you into the depth of what's there. Love one another as I have loved you. How deep does that go? Long way down. So staying actively engaged in scripture, allowing it to read you, 
is one of the, the tools or the, the thrusters, if you will, that God uses to keep us moving in the long obedience. Second, I, I want to talk about our soul-seeking Savior, Jesus. Soul-seeking. That's a perhaps unusual way to describe Jesus of all the titles, all the adjectives that you might think of placing right in front of his name. Soul-seeking might not be one of them, but I want to talk about that for a little minute. Do you have a soul or are you a soul? You are a soul. Soul in scripture, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Those are parallel. Your soul is all that is within you. It is the totality of you. It is you in relationship to God. We've largely, from our culture, lost the language of soul altogether, and we've replaced it with what word? We no longer talk about soul. We talk about self. Bless the Lord, O myself. Praise myself, the King of heaven. It's missing something, isn't it? It's not just that those are unfamiliar words, but self is a non-relational word. Soul is immediately a relational word. As soon as you refer to your soul, you are in relationship with the Lord and with all the souls around you. So Jesus is our soul-seeking Savior. When Jesus asked, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit or lose his soul? He's not just asking a narrowly evangelistic question. He is. There's no profit if you become rich and famous and popular and all those other things and forfeit your soul. But it's not an over and done question. It's a question that off opens a lifelong conversation between you and Jesus. What does it profit you, Jesus often comes and asks us, to gain this thing that now so much has your attention and your energy and your focus? if it costs you your soul. We've unfortunately in recent days, and this happens periodically, where Christian leaders are exposed for getting into trouble of all kinds, and it almost inv always involves sex and money and power. And when Unfortunately, a, a Christian leader undergoes a very public crash and burn kind event, tragic and terrible that is on so many levels. 
It's not a cognitive issue for, for that man or woman. It's an inertia issue. Their soul has actually been in motion towards that particular asteroid for a long time. And the same is true of all of our souls. Our crashes and burns tend to not be so public. Although these days with Facebook, you know, watch out. But I want you to think about that for a minute in this context of Jesus, your soul-seeking Savior. Every one of those leaders, no doubt, understood cognitively, could have explained, no, God is not in favor of adultery or embezzlement or whatever else it was that was going on. Things seemed to be so on course. Everything apparently was heading in the right direction until the asteroid shows up. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. There are asteroids out there for all of us. As Leroy Curtis is fond of saying, every single one of us is one bad decision away from disaster. I have a uh, pastor buddy of mine back home who described uh, a man coming to visit his church recently, a uh, fellow, you know, in his 50s roughly, and as my friend Todd, the pastor, was introducing himself and a little bit about their church, and he said, um, hey, tell me something about the state of your soul. And this man looked at him and said, I've been a Christian all my life. I've gone to church all my life. And no one has ever asked me that question. And if you were asked that question, would you know how to answer? Do we even still have the vocabulary to talk about? Tell me about the state of your soul. How really is it? with you and Jesus. It's those kinds of conversations with one another that keep us rooted and risking and reaching. So Jesus, your soul-seeking Savior, is asking you that question today. How is your soul? Is it well with your soul? There's a difference between singing the words to that beloved hymn and understanding where they come from and why they're so wonderful, but is it well with your soul? One of the best ways to dig into that question to allow you and Jesus to talk a little bit about how's your soul? What's really going on in there? It's the ancient practice of solitude and silence. I know. It's impossible. Life is so full, so crammed, so frenetic, so hurried that solitude and silence are impossible. 
But just take a minute and imagine with me. Imagine you're sitting down somewhere comfortably, and all you have to do is be with Jesus for an hour. You don't get to pray. You don't have to produce anything. You don't have to accomplish anything. You just are there with him. And what happens? Your soul begins talking to you, right? You're going a little bit nuts just sitting there not accomplishing anything because you got a lot to do. Your mind is racing. Your thoughts are flying. The to-do lists keep popping up and jumping around back and forth. There are anxieties to be held at bay, fears to manage, all of that. So even just imagining that for a, you know, a minute here is telling us something about our souls. Kevin referred last night to the book Slow Church. All he had time to read was the title. And, and maybe the blurb on the back. And I, I confess, I've heard of the book too, but I haven't read it. <laughs> but is it possible that by slowing down, you could actually be more? Dallas Willard, uh, I think many of you are familiar with his work, but one of the things that um, he was known for saying is ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. To be busy describes your external conditions. You have things to do, you have responsibilities, you have tasks to accomplish. Hurry is talking about your soul. The reason that ruthlessly eliminate hurry seems like an impossible task is because our souls are crying out for help. <laughs> Jesus, can you deliver me from my hurry? Could you slow me down? Could you teach me how to slow down, not hurry, and possibly find myself becoming more fully, fully who I am in Christ? And the third thing I want to talk about that keeps you on course, talk just a little bit about Scripture, a little bit about our soul-seeking Savior. And finally, Jesus' mundane, messy, mysterious church. You've probably heard of the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, it always sounds like a Catholic thing, you know, the rise of the nuns, but not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, those people who, when asked on a survey, 
what religious affiliation they identify with will reply none. And you may also have heard about the Duns, D-O-N-E-S. And Duns are typically folks who have been faithful and active in their churches for years and decades even, and have finally reached the point of being done. Duns are often sensing a disconnect between Jesus and church. The church seems to have a different agenda, different set of priorities, different way of being and doing that just doesn't seem to square with Jesus. Every move of God's spirit, including the one we've been part of, has two agendas that are inevitably in conflict. One is the Holy Spirit's agenda, working to purify the people of Christ in some way. The other agenda comes from us and has to do with at last, we will create the perfect church. I remember when I was 25 years old thinking, isn't it great that the Holy Spirit finally showed up? <laughs> Called my generation to him and is finally going to clear, you know, clean house, get all rid of all this, you know, stuff and nonsense that's, you know, credit up the church all these years. The Holy Spirit is way more realistic about us than we are. Who doesn't want to be part of a truly elite church? A gates of hell not prevailing against us church. A church of Christ followers who are each and every one wholly committed, wholly on fire, wholly, holy, and all the time. Sometimes we think we've actually come upon such a fellowship, such a Christian community, and, and we, we start to settle into it, and lo and behold, the revolution becomes mundane. Mundane means ordinary, everyday, down in the dirt. God gets a hold of your life and you join the Franciscans or a new urban monastic community or a, a shepherding the discipleship church signs and wonders or you join a nun and done group that meets at a tavern or a bowling alley and you know just <laughs> yeah we're none we're done you know we just meet on the front porch and just are glad to be none and done. <laughs> you, 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 know, you hit the road for Canterbury or Rome and you, you finally feel that you arrive at the promised land of genuine, authentic, sincere, New Testament Christianity church life. And you settle in and it's mundane and it's a mess. And the gates of hell often seem to be getting along rather well. Thanks very much. <laughs> Jesus Christ, head of the church and Lord of all, roots his people in communities that are mundane and messy, and that's a good thing for us all. Beautiful plants grow in the dirt and the manure, the mundane and messy dirt of daily life. And what makes church so messy, of course, is them those brothers and sisters who annoy, 
irritate, flatter, frustrate, or challenge you in some way. They're cranky, set in their ways, undisciplined, worldly, ask too many questions of suspect zeal. They see things differently from you. They have bad habits. They ask upsetting questions. They're either hopelessly behind the times or wildly avant-garde. And they think the patriots are cheaters. <laughs> How can Christ by his spirit indwell such creatures? There is no Christian life apart from the church. Not necessarily church as we know it, not necessarily wedded to structures and ways of doing things, but church nonetheless. The body of Christ, the temple of the Lord, the vine. There's no escape from the messiness of it all the mundaneness of it all. It's in that messy, mundane context that Jesus comes to you and says, how's it going with your soul? What's going on in there? Can we talk about it? And that church community, whatever form or shape it takes, in the midst of all its ordinariness and messiness is also deeply mysterious. Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. Christ is in you. You singular and you plural, and you are in Christ. How often we dismiss one another and dismiss churches and dismiss all kinds of things saying, you know, there's just not much going on there. In order to become really, in order to grow spiritually, I just need to find a better group of people to do it with. But there's more going on there than you know or they know or we know. Because it's not just the mundaneness of our ordinary lives, and it's not just the messiness of those ordinary lives and the messiness of all those networks of relationships. It's mysterious. Christ in you, you in him. There's a lot more to that than any of us know. So look somebody in the eyes and say, you are in Christ. Go ahead. You are in Christ. And keep that eye contact and say, Christ is in you. So I'll finish now. 
Obviously, rootedness and risking and reaching all belong together in a fairly complex set of interactions. The breadth of the branches and their ability to reach and to bear the weight of risk is grounded in the roots. Our roots need the, the, the pressures and, and stresses that uh, cause them to go deeper in order that the branches might go wider. Our soul-seeking Savior, through the power of his alive and active word, is reading us as we read scripture. His presence in the context of our mundane, messy, yet mysterious Christian communities, he's presently at work by the power of his spirit, rooting and grounding us in his word, his story, his purpose, his kingdom, his gospel, his love for the sake of the world, for the glory of God the Father. Thank you.